Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and have your postal carrier pick up the packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. By GoToMeeting with HD Faces. Start hosting your own face-to-face meetings today by signing up for your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code GABFEST. And by the University of California, creating opportunity through knowledge. That's the power of public. Learn more at UniversityOfCalifornia.edu. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for May 9th, 2014, the I Miss Monica Lewinsky edition. I'm David Plotz, editor of Slate. On today's Gap Fest, let us pray. The Supreme Court issues a pro-God decision in a government prayer case. Emily will risk divine wrath by deconstructing it. Then, North Carolina Republicans pick an establishment figure to challenge Democrat Kay Hagan in November for that Senate seat. And then the return of Monica Lewinsky. What does the Lewinsky scandal mean 16 years on? And two years before Hillary Clinton runs for president, I can't wait to get to this topic. It's really the first topic. It's funny that we're doing it third. I know. Well. It's fine. We could do it. Well, should we make it first? We could make it first. No, because uh, no, let's we'll let's, lose we'll, everyone yeah, we or have the, we'll. The potatoes, the yeah. vegetables first. Of course, we'll have cocktail chatter too. You heard there, both of them, joined Ow. in Slate DC this week by Emily Bazelon, down for a visit. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. Slate senior editor. And of course, John Dickerson, down not for a visit. Down. Jesus, down. From down. The pile You're down. Of, yes, just in a permanent state of downness, but down from the pile of trash in his office. So how did I change the introduction to the show this week? You, you guys, got to the title really quickly. You guys didn't even notice. Awesome. What did you Did you, you notice, Mike? No. We're I did the topics losing. first. Normally, I introduce you guys first and then it do the topics. Forever. Today, I decided let's do the topics first because I was listening to the other shows and they all do their topics first. I thought, you know, why are we... Futzing around. Why are that we makes futzing sense. around? That's good. Oh, I wonder if listeners caught notice. that when you did that. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Before we get started, I just want to make a pitch for Slate Plus, our great new membership program. I'm going to urge you to become a member. It's got all sorts of goodies for podcast listeners. We do are doing ad-free versions of this show. We have a new recommendation engine that contains the recommendations we've made in Cocktail Chatter over the past several years, as well as all the recommendations from the Culture Fest and Hang Up and Listen as well. We're doing discounts on tickets to live shows, also all sorts of wonderful goodies on the site. And, of course, we're doing bonus segments. Today, our bonus segment is we're going to play a game in the bonus segment. So those of you who are Slate Plus listeners, you're going to get to listen on afterwards, and there's going to be a game that John, Emily, and I are going to play. It's only $5 a month or $50 a year. $50 a year, you also get a fabulous, beautiful Jonathan Adler mug and no pagination. Did I mention that? On Slate Stories. To get the best offer, you can email me at david.plots at slate.com. I'll get you the best offer. Or go to slate.com slash gabfestplus. Slate.com slash gabfestplus. 
Give us this day our daily podcast. This week, the Supreme Court ruled that it is totally fine to have enthusiastic sectarian prayer before a town meeting. The town of Greece, New York, has a tradition, a sort of not very long-lived tradition, of prayer before city council meetings. For more than a decade, only Christian pastors were invited to lead those prayers, which were often overtly and enthusiastically Christian. A Supreme Court majority of five to four said, that's basically fine. Why did they do that, Emily? Well, they have really shifted the ground here and moved from what used to be the test for whether governments can have prayer, can have religious expression. It used to be that if the government was excessively entangled up in religion with what it was doing, that was not okay. Or if the government was endorsing a particular religion, also not okay. But that is the old test designed by Sandra Day O'Connor, who, of course, doesn't matter anymore. And Justice Kennedy finally got to impose his test, which he's been rooting for for years, which has to do with coercion. And so what he was saying was that there was no coercion here because the people who were attending these meetings at the town of Greece could have gotten up and walked out or chosen not to pray at these legislative sessions. So it's not that the result is surprising because 30 years ago, the Supreme Court had said that legislative prayer was constitutional in a case about the legislature in Nebraska. But the way the justices got here is actually huge in this way that I didn't anticipate, although reading Kennedy's opinion, I should have. And it really opens the door to much more expression of religious faith and really of Christian faith in government settings. Where will that faith be expressed now? What's going through that door? Well, Justice Kagan had a bunch of ideas about that. She was talking about the DMV or an immigration naturalization ceremony or a polling place. And there's nothing explicitly that limits Kennedy's opinion, although there's a concurrence by Justice Alito where he says that Kagan is going overboard. And that is actually kind of hopeful because then maybe he thinks those settings are different and would be coercive. The one thing Kennedy did make sure to say was that he was not changing the test for school prayer and that the case that says you can't at a high school graduation have a religious invocation, that that case still stands. But I have to say, reading the logic of this case, it is almost all the way to school prayer. And the court could take a case for next year that's about whether you could have a high school graduation ceremony in a church with lots of crosses everywhere. And reading this case, I feel like the answer is going to be yes. And the, uh, the reason that at a high school presumably would be kept is what? That you can't leave a high school graduation. If you're part of the high school class, you don't have the freedom to leave. Yeah, exactly. That students would feel coerced by having to listen to a prayer in a way that adults sitting in a town meeting don't. I think this definition of coercion is completely unrealistic and incredibly blind to what it feels like to be a religious minority sitting in a particular setting. And Justice Kagan in dissent did a wonderful job of really expressing that problem. But it just did not move five of the justices. And kind of amazingly, let me just say one more thing, because I know you're interested in this. There's a separate opinion by Justice Thomas and Scalia joined it in which they go so far to say that, yes, the test should be coercion. And it's only coercion if basically the government requires you to somehow express, like by forcing you to pay taxes, supporting Christianity. I mean, it's really right. The establishment clause is literally only the establishment of an obligatory Exactly. Practice. And they're not even sure they think that the Establishment Clause applies to the states as opposed to the federal government at all, which is 
kind of amazing too, except that now that they've said it, there'll be a whole rash of law so, review articles so, explaining why they're so right. So, John, we have here two Jews and a Catholic in this on this podcast. In the court, you have six Catholics and three Jews or That's something. Right. But you had a, it was a Catholic Jewish split, essentially. With Sotomayor, With Sotomayor joining, the joining, the, joining the Jews. Right. So, what, what, that, so it's that a, the, majori- the, the majoritarian religion, right? Except no, it's not. Well, the, but, historically have not no, been so helped by these kinds of... I mean, that's kind well, of an amazing thing in all of this is that... Certainly at one point they weren't at all. Exactly. I mean, it's Justice Kennedy's ideas about religion and why you would want prayer before a town meeting is that they're all about bringing people together and uniting them. What conception of religion is is true for Catholics even? I I know. That's that's what seemed weird in his ruling is he was saying, well, this serves an important kind of invocational purpose, which is both on the one hand saying – it's kind of not religious or it's not so strongly religious. But then, of course, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, I mean, for the people who believe or don't believe, it is the thing. There's nothing more important right, than that. It's not just some disrespecting ni- almost by the majority because they so want to allow this. They're minimizing the significance of saying, you know, and now let us pray to right. the Lord Jesus, our Savior, like this super Christian. Right, right. Term. So it's super important to the people who are doing the praying, but not so effective powerful that it's overly offensive to the people doing the listening. That's right. what Weird. seems odd to me in, in the way this this came out. One thing I wanted to ask you about Kagan in terms of the question of convincing the other justices. Was there ever a route to convince Kennedy or any of the other justices where she could have, you know, because she made the case, for example, that the founders, you know, were not as religious as the majority said, it seems to me you're never going to win that argument. Oh, you would think that could be a winning argument with Scalia and Thomas because they are the chief originalists and they... But their vision of the originalism is not the the actual historical vision. about the historical religionism about religion. Now, it's also true that when you look at the 19th century that the conception of religion in American government and society changes and that's much... But when you go back to the founding, which is what you're supposed to do if you're Clarence and Scalia, that history's on her side. Well, I, I guess my point on that is you can cherry pick that history. I mean, you can pick to make the case that they were fully religious and to, and to make the case that they're not. I guess my point is you have your facts, they have their facts. In terms mm-hmm. of actually making a tactical argument that's going to get them, because that's what this is about, right? right? Is using their own set of thinking to drive them to a result that you want. Was that what she did? Was there a route? Or did she just make some arguments that seem reasonable, but never would to the constituency she was arguing against, which is essentially six people. Well, I think that since it's really only Kennedy, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say one person. He is very wedded to coercion. And then the argument would be, but this is coercion. And there, I actually think what's kind of incredible is that the facts of this case didn't move him. Because what was happening here? For years, the town of Greece had a book of ministers and religious denominations in it. And they would just like call and see who felt like coming. Well, it just so happened everyone in the book was Christian. And they didn't think about the fact that there were some, not many, but some Jews and non-Jew, you know, Muslims, Hindus who lived in the community. And there were synagogues and other houses of worship in the region who they could have included. None of that happened until this suit was filed, in which case there was like a tiny flurry of a rabbi and a Wiccan and a Baha'i guy showing up. And then it went away again. And it was Sounds all like Christian again. It's beginning like of a great crazy. joke. A rabbi, a it would Wiccan. Be a great joke. <laughs> uh, here's a question, though. What is the right of non-religious people is it would it be right for the non-religious to say how about having a non-religious invocation of you know something 
It should be. So I actually feel like one of the amazing things about this case is we've moved so far from considering the views of the atheists. So the last time or a last time there was a big Supreme Court kerfluffle about religion, remember the Pledge of Allegiance. Why do we say God in the Pledge of Allegiance? We are so far away from that now. God is like, oh, of course, he gets grandfathered in. The question is, like, how many times can you invoke Jesus over the years and no one else's God without crossing the line into sectarianism. And if you don't think endorsement is the test, then it doesn't matter that the town of Greece can, completely endorsed Can I make a few random points? One is that I actually think this is a defeat for liberals that is their victory. The, the actual gain that the pro-religious forces are getting out of this is minimal. So, you know, some town meetings, people are going to feel uncomfortable if you're a Jew or a Muslim living in a small town somewhere. It's going to really, it won't be pleasant, but that really the kind of aesthetics and the optics of this are very bad for conservatives. And it does feel like this is a way in which conservatives are trying to shove a particular majoritarian vision down the throats of everyone else, and that's not going to benefit them in the long run. That's point number one. Point number two, doesn't this really also point to the divide in America between towns and cities? This would never, ever, ever happen in a city. Because in, there would be people of other faiths invited? People of other faiths. No, even in a southern city. Even if you're in, in Dallas or something, this would never happen. Like the places where there's heterodoxy, Well, you wouldn't would have never... a book where every place of worship in the whole city was just Christians, right, And where it I didn't guess. occur to people like, oh, maybe oh, this maybe. is a mistake. Where it clearly didn't occur to people in this place. That, right, right. Oh, it it doesn't mistake. seem like they were deliberately trying to make anyone feel excluded to give them that. Yeah, but, that's a really good point. I think your first argument is a really interesting one. I'm very divided on how I feel about this. I mean, on the one hand, I think it's such a complete misunderstanding of separation of church and state in America and why we have that. And that's one of the things that's actually really special about the United States and our history. On the other hand, there's a lot of evidence that the European approach, which is completely to have a recognized government religion, is actually better for keeping the peace and that people just kind of move on. They don't spend a lot of time fighting about the role of religion in society. I I have life experience with this. One is that I went to school in England at a overtly religious school and a as a Jew. And the other is that I went to a Episcopal high school where I was one of the very few Jews in the school. Different when it's your school coercing from when the state is. But, you know, it's a similar point. I felt like because I lived in a country which basically protects minority rights and, minority, and you know, it's clear there's like freedom and economic freedom and opportunity. It always felt slightly ridiculous to me to go to these ceremonies that were this majoritarian view was being shoved down my throat. But it never felt I never felt like, oh, this is destroying me. Now, maybe if you're a Muslim living in a small town, it does feel destructive. But it, it just didn't feel like that big a deal. I can understand why people would complain. I get it a little bit. But it just didn't feel like a huge deal. See, I have – I think that that's part of my experience sort of of going to Quaker school my whole growing up. But I also think actually it was energizing that if you like defining yourself as an outsider right. in some small way, exactly. feeling yes. marginalized yes. is like – makes you feel like you're, you have something to fight for and you're standing up for yourself in some way or at least like you're making clear your identity. Um, <laughs> right. Also, Quaker schools don't – no, there was lots of Christmas carols. Oh, okay. Lots of them, <laughs> which I learned to love. John, after. do you think, as our as our resident political commentator, do you think there's any political hay that anyone makes out of the decision, that anyone gets anything out of it politically? No. No. I mean, for this to become a national conversation, it would have to show up in the next Republican primaries. There will be a role for if Mike Huckabee decides to run or Rick Santorum decides to run, they will make their argument they will be the social values candidate. But, 
I mean, what are they going to do? Argue about prayer in school? I mean, there's nothing. There's not like a drum they can beat. So this wouldn't be it either because they want. The GabFest is brought to you today by the University of California. The Blue and Gold Opportunity Plan at the University of California covers tuition for California families earning less than $80,000 a year. Helping to keep a world-class education within reach, that's the power of public. You can learn more about that at universityofcalifornia.edu. And now for today's breakthrough. Contrary to stereotypes furthered by individuals like Tiger Mom Amy Chua, certain groups such as Asian immigrants are neither inherently nor culturally better suited than their peers to achieve lofty educational and career goals. In fact, according to a study from UC Irvine and UCLA, Mexican-Americans are the most successful second-generation group in the country. The reason is simple. The study considered not just where people finished, but from where they started. To read this story and uncover more groundbreaking innovations by the University of California, visit slate.com slash breakthroughs. North Carolina Republicans elected Tom Tillis on Tuesday to run as their nominee against Kay Hagan for Senate. Hagan, a moderate Democrat, it seems one of the most vulnerable incumbents in the 2014 cycle. And Tillis had a relatively easy primary victory, which is going to make it very, very hard for Hagan to hold the seat. Tillis beat off a Tea Party challenger and another challenger further to his right. He was the establishment candidate, but that is not to say he was the moderate candidate. As the Speaker of the North Carolina House, he presided over a remarkable swing right in North Carolina politics, big education cuts, tax cuts, regulation rollbacks, very strict voter ID law, end to pre-K, cutting back on benefits for disabled students. The state gave up on its federal unemployment benefits. They blocked Medicaid expansion. John, why was this victory important for Republican hopes in November? Well, it was... Or maybe it wasn't. Well, no. It's good for Republicans and their hopes in November in one sense, which is that Democrats, six months ago, when you talked to the Democrats running the Senate campaigns, they were looking to primaries in states like Georgia, Kentucky, and North Carolina for big, messy food fights between the quote-unquote establishment wing and the, and the Tea Party wing in the hopes that in those fights, two things would happen. Embarrassing things would happen that would they would be able to use to brand the Republican Party. And whoever the winning candidate came to be would do some huge backbend to win over the Tea Party voters that they would then be tarnished and both lose the specific race they're running in, but then also do something that could be used to beat up the entire party. That didn't really happen in this race. Tom Tillis, there's a video Democrats are trying to make a lot of saying it's his sort of 47% moment, 47% referring to the a video in which uh, Mitt Romney talked about the takers in America. But it still really kind of hasn't happened, and that's for two reasons. One, Tom Tillis may have been the establishment candidate to the extent that he was backed by the Chamber of Commerce and um, American Crossroads and people who are promoting the idea of having better candidates run for Republican seats so that these kind of crazy candidates don't run and then lose in places where they should win. But he's a pretty conservative guy. 59% of the Tea Party members said they'd be just perfectly happy with Tom Tillis. So it's not like he's Arlen Specter. And Dave Weigel wrote very smartly about this, which is that basically it's a classification issue here. The differences were at the margin. Brent Bozell, who's a longtime conservative agitator, head of the Media Research Center, said, we didn't even play in this race because all the candidates were perfectly fine. When you've got somebody who is in the business of trying to raise money by pointing out distinctions and people who lack purity, not taking a side, you've got a race that's pretty far over to the right. So having said that, then there were all these outside forces that said, okay, there is not going to be a civil war in this race, but we're going to spend a boatload of money 
on Tillis to make sure that even though there's no real distinction, that in the cut and thrust of a campaign, even the tiniest distinction doesn't blow up into something the other side can exploit. 90% of the money spent in North Carolina, more than any other state, came from outside of the state. And that's in part because of this recognition by the kind of elites in the party that they want to make sure they don't have one of these internal cannibalistic fights that loses them a seat and that gives the other side fodder. So So do you think they're intervention, all the hundreds of thousands of dollars they spent. Millions, I mean, yeah. millions, even better You're living in the 80s. Point. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yes, I wish I was. Do you think all that money was about this race, or was it also about trying to shut this down in other races, too? Yeah, I think it's both. I think, generally, there is a movement among a variety of groups, the Chamber, something called the Main Street Partnership. I was talking to somebody involved in this event, and they were talking about the North Carolina race, but spoke in those general terms. And they said, you've got to squash them like bugs, or else they'll keep coming back. This person didn't mean North Carolina. He meant all races, all of these situations in which it's not the Tea Party. There's an interesting split happening here, which is it's not that necessarily the Tea Party voter is being disparaged by the elites or the Main Street group. It's what they call the purity for profit groups. The Washington Oh, I love that. I hadn't heard that. Well, that's a term from Steve LaTourette, the former congressman who's at the Main Street Partnership. And what he talks about is basically the Heritage Action Fund, Club for Growth, these groups that basically target members who are not 100% pure and use them to raise money, essentially. John Boehner called out these groups. The argument is basically these groups in Washington that are spending all of your money, not necessarily to win races, are agitating in these races, basically just to feather their own nests. And there's that argument has worked a little bit. I'm not saying it necessarily worked in North Carolina, but it's working more than you obviously would have worked in, say, 2010. Emily, do you think this means that the, that the Republican Party has successfully figured out how to fold the Tea Party into itself and the Tea Party as a, as a kind of separate, divisive, troublemaking institution within the conservative movement is, is no longer. No, because it's just one race. And we have to see whether this attempted essentially pest control actually works in other places and across the country. And also, the Republicans have to be careful. They don't want to completely fold in the Tea Party because they need its like rabble-rousing grassroots part. Right. They just want to shut down the purity for profit people. You right. And about. also, if the Tea Party is totally happy with Tom Tillis, it's a victory for Great. the Tea Party. So, again, right. I think the, the Tea Party, this is not a civil war the Republican Party has won. It's a civil war that the Tea Party has won. And right. it, is, it is now, you know, it's getting its genes are now in the, in the gene pool. I think that's right. I mean, Genghis there's... Khan has conquered Iran by filling it with with uh, his Mongolians and his brother Don. Um, I think there was always a classification failure with the Tea Party, which is that you know it was called the Tea Party, but they were just movement conservatives. I mean, in the one hand, you you had the Tea Party rising, and now the Tea Party genes have been spread, but those genes were always there. I mean, they were always these are you know. Basically, movement conservatives. Right. Um, the genuine libertarian part is still that's slightly interesting. wiggling outside. Right. I mean, but they, they must be small overall. I mean, what, I love them, but they don't have enough the who, people. The libertarian? Yeah, the yeah. like real hardcore libertarians where the right essentially meets the left. They they don't meet that. They, they do. They, they, don't they, don't are, they overlap Not when you talk about on taxation. some issues. No, so, I know. But on some issues, they do. Another primary is the Nebraska primary in which you have 
two candidates. One, you know, has been supported by Sarah Palin. The other has been supported by Mike Lee. Again, another situation in which you don't really have establishment versus Tea Party. Shane Osborne, who you may remember from the EP3 plane that went down in 2001, the early part of the Bush administration, it was flying over China. It was a spy plane, got hit. They spent 13 days in, in captivity. He's running in that race and is, has been the front runner. But this is another case in which people might say, oh, establishment versus Tea Party, since SAS, the guy who's number two, has been supported by Palin. But in fact, uh, you know, it's not really that. And so it's just more proof of kind of what happened in North Carolina. I want to make one point about North Carolina, which is the oddness of the state, which is becoming a purpler and purpler state. And yet the voters don't seem to be. And yet it's becoming more and more conservative. There's a fantastic story. I know I talk about the story over and over again on the show by Jane Mayer several years ago about Art Pope, who is a right-wing, wealthy right-wing. Um, he's the Koch brothers of North Carolina. He's the Koch brothers of North Carolina. He's, he's associated with Americans for Prosperity, I think. Uh, he's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of ideas. And he's now the deputy budget director of North Carolina, effectively the budget director of North Carolina. But he spent a huge amount of money, both directly and then through various foundations and nonprofits that he controls, on turning North Carolina into a red state by funding state legislative elections, by funding very local elections, building up a roster of candidates. And it's paid off. It, took, it's, you know, it was a project over a decade or more. And it's been victorious. And they control, they have, a, I think, a veto-proof majority. I they think, have basically in, countered the demographic changes in North Carolina and, and with prevented tactical the state, politics. Yes, yeah. prevented the state from going purple when it should be purple. Right. It's totally, it's, it's a fascinating story of victory. And again, going back to that great point that Jane Mayer makes, which is that politics is cheap. Like if you want to buy up a state, if you want to buy influence, it is not that much money and the, the payoff can be enormous. if you Unless you're Sheldon Adelson, in which case. Even if you're Sheldon Adelson. Sheldon Adelson, Sheldon Adelson could have spent, spent his he, money a lot smarter Sheldon on Sheldon Adelson has state. spent several, you know, he spent what? Right, maybe right. No, but I meant dollars. I think he's like the most famous billionaire. He's, right, everyone he, listens to right, him. Right, but his horses keep losing. But, but I, his, I get the real his ideas haven't had lost. in the state. His horses have lost, but it's not, you know, you don't, do you see any Republican candidate stepping outside on Israel? Well, that's not because... Of, I mean, that, th- he's not the only one in the conservative movement who supports Israel. Do you see them stepping outside on gambling issues? Is any of them taking on the gambling issues that he cares a lot about? I don't think so. Different. I think he's, he's a very canny, effective... He understands it. It's a brilliant play. I'm surprised there haven't been more people doing it. I think it's easier to do it from the right. Well, Tom Steyer is doing it on the left right now on environmental issues. Mm-hmm. I think it is easier. Trying. I think it's easier on the right. I do think it's easier on the right. But Why? Well, because you're trying to persuade politicians to do things in the interests of rich people generally. Yeah. And so that is more what? It's easier to persuade Republican politicians to do things that serve the interests of rich people than it is to persuade Democrats to to serve the interests of rich people. But you're assuming that the Democratic gazillionaires who would play this game would be trying to serve the interests of rich people, whereas they may be actually working against their own interests or have other interests like preventing the disaster of climate change, this Tom Steyer's thing. Maybe, well. Depends what your issue is, right? I guess. I mean, I, I guess Democrats have, they've been very effective in buying Democrats on financial bank regulatory issues. Yes, where, they sure have. The Democrats have been for sale on that. Right. So in fact, if you pick the right rich person's issue, then you're okay. Right. But those are right wing issues. They bought yeah, the but they also disprove your point. It's pretty easy to buy Democrats when it comes to the banking. They're not right wing no, issues. Well, 
I'm, I'm getting confused in my own. I've lost. I'm lost in my own <laughs> Good, argument. Good. Then I, I somehow won just by confusing <laughs> you. All right. We'll leave it. We'll leave it there. <laughs> unless, unless John wants to rescue me. Save he sometimes does. I'm just waving from the shore. You're probably right, but I, yeah, whatever. I know there's a. I know there's a reason I'm right, but I have to figure it out. I didn't think about it. I didn't think about it before we started taping. All right. Uh, we're sponsored this week also by Stamps.com. Making trips to the post office is becoming a thing of the past. You just don't need to do it anymore thanks to Stamps.com. You already know that going to the post office is inconvenient. You have to drive there, find parking, wait online. But what you probably didn't know is that you're paying more for postage there than you have to. Stamps.com is a better way. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package right from your computer and printer. and Just hand it to your mail carrier. With Stamps.com, you'll get special postage discounts you can't even get at the post office on first-class, priority mail, international, and more. So you'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for the special offer, a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Monica Lewinsky is back, thank God. The former White House intern has written a personal essay in Vanity Fair about the enduring cost of the sex scandal that almost took down the Clinton presidency in 1998. Lewinsky insists that the sex was entirely consensual, but says her post-mistress life has been a horror. She's been unemployable. She's been slut-shamed, ridiculed the butt of jokes. She quite eloquently, I think, blames this eloquently, although perhaps not totally correctly, blames it on a colder, glibber, crueler society, what she calls the feedback loop of defame and shame. And she basically wrote this essay to say, hey, I'm actually a real person. And the way I've been treated is is horrible. Emily, does she have a case? Absolutely. I thought this was a great piece. Impressive, smart, thoughtful. She has been really misused and mistreated in the aftermath of her affair with President Clinton. And I thought she was able to both defend herself, but also situate this in this larger problem of internet shaming. I mean, she realizes that her experience is pre-internet, but sort of, right? Yeah, Not right. pre-internet, I, I... but pre-social media. That's mm-hmm, the way I should have mm-hmm, said mm-hmm. that, because we're talking about 1998 here. But she talks about how in the moment when Tyler Clementi killed himself, this Rutgers student who um, felt like he was being having his sex acts broadcast on video, although that didn't exactly really happen, but that was this whole webcam problem at Rutgers University. She felt this enormous sense, huge wave of sympathy for him because he was at the center of this exact kind of particular horrible public humiliation that can take place and then just get whipped all over online and on social media. And she is right about that. And I have to say, I wasn't in Washington in 1998. I was like barely working as a freelance journalist. But I felt terrible reading her account of how she felt feminists treated her and the way they didn't just defend President Clinton, who they saw as generally a friend to women's issues, but they really ran her down. It was actually atrocious and embarrassing to read. The account of the feminists who uh, met for the um, New York Observer gaggle or whatever chat was the the way they treated her, the way in which the treatment of her put her in the most demeaning. I mean, it wasn't just demeaning by talking about what she did, but then imagining further levels of demeaningness. It was grotesque. I've, I've actually been around 
piggish men and have never seen such a successful alley-oop with four women, five women, there six women. There were nine of them. Nine women in which they each fought to outdo the other on finding a new way to demeanor. It was absolutely beyond the pale. And that that was going on is pretty, like nobody raised their hand and said, change the topic or whatever. They just kind of, I mean, that was the most striking part of the entire piece, but it obviously drove home her larger point. I mean, I don't. I mean, I'm uh, okay. First of all, let me say this, which is oh, a weird thing to say. Washington. A weird thing to say, which is that had Monica Lewinsky been a presidential mistress or a mistress of a world leader in almost any other place, mistresses of world leaders, I don't think that you should have the expectation that you're the mistress of a world leader and then you get to lead a normal, private, happy life. Right, but that was you end up, you end up, that's strung up, you end up hanged, you end up, you end up, you know, married, you end up married to the best friend of yours. But she did not say that I expected a white picket well, fence, fence you know, she, and to go she, quietly She expected to be able to get a nice job. No, she expected to get a regular job. She didn't do the things which normally, which people do now, which is to capitalize on her fame and notoriety and take the $10 million and pose in Playboy. She didn't do the things that people normally do because she wasn't a presidential mistress who kind of sought it out for salacious purposes the way someone might. Do you think but, it's reasonable that for the rest of her life no, she can I never don't, have a job? I don't think it is reasonable at all. I think it's totally unreasonable. I think what she's gone through is unreasonable. I think it is, it's not fair. But I don't think on the scale of world injustices, this oh. doesn't surprise me. Well, no, it's not a huge she's deal. She's not saying it's not, it's not. And the fact that, that she cites a single... You you know, uh, there was plenty of slut shaming of her in 1998. It was disgraceful, and what the thing she cited was disgusting. And the things she cited that Maureen Dowd wrote about her and won a Pulitzer Prize for were disgusting. It is absolutely true. But but it's but it's a it's a, it's a case study has, of one. No, I don't think that's it's fair. a case study of one. No, I think there is. Oh a no, way I don't hear that. It, at, first of all, the reaction to this Vanity Fair piece, there have been some equally shameful reactions by women and commentators. But it's not a case of Did you of see one. the case? The th- most interesting thing she said in that piece to me was she talks about how she's approached and she, people encounter her. 99.9% of the encounters are positive. 99.9% of the things that people say to her are encouraging and positive. Right. But one person so, on the, one so person there, on the she street. She gets trolled. She's getting trolled. It's very unpleasant. It's like she goes through life. Everyone looks at her. They see her. They know she gave the president a blowjob, right? Like that is absolutely the case. But it's not – I don't know. Well, she never anywhere in this piece either explicitly or even mildly hints at the idea that this is some – you know, even in the top one billion of injustices in the history of humanity. So I don't think she's – she's not saying that. I think the reason this is more than just a case study of one is if she – she's making the claim that – and I think she doesn't make this claim but it's essentially the case that she is the first of – the kind of internet yes. ages victim right. of this galloping humiliation right. culture. And the fact that the women participating in that New York Observer thing, who should be the last offense as the dragons of vulgarity are coming and eating Her just life. constantly, they should be the ones at least lifting the smallest yes. matchsticks. Yes, they didn't. And they, they not failed. only didn't, they, they got on the yes, back of the did. dragons and went, give me more right. fresh right. meat. But you know what? That's... It's a story of one that tells us something about the galloping humiliation culture that rings true and is ever more so now in social media. I don't agree with that. I think what has happened is that she is a category of one because she came out at a time when internet culture was being invented. And there was only – the only thing that happened essentially was this massive – 
viciousness that it descended on her. And right. that what has happened since then is that what now there is, she would there's have the viciousness, defenders. but yeah, there's the defense. Right. And that you are able to seize it and take, for people who want to, can seize that and take advantage I, of it and do something with it, which she was unable to do. She would well, have defenders time. now. She the would feminist have a sphere would have a fight. Some people yes. would be on her side, some not. That's happening now. Right. None of that obviates her main point, which is that there is this cycle of humiliation. Having the online component completely whips it up. And it is deeply illuminating that at the time, so many feminists and everyone just piled on and made her seem like this kind of tawdry floozy who was only worth mocking and making fun of. That is just the wrong way to treat someone. And when she says, like, in the piece, I just want you to know I'm a person, it's deeply important that we all remember that every time one of these things happens, we forget that. And I'm guilty of it, too. And people have, you know, our listeners have called me out for that and talking about people like Anthony Weiner. 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 To to me, like this goes back to, I think, the point we were talking about last week, which is the reaction that the women in that New York Observer thing had was beyond the pale. To say that, you know, those of us who went through that and experienced it and paid close attention, to say that not making jokes about it, not making, like, finding absurdity in it, not sort of finding reasons to condemn her behavior at the time, to say that we were all guilty of that is ridiculous. What's bad is that she hasn't been forgiven. What's not bad is that people said things at the time. Ah, but even at the time, there could have been... That's a distinction. That's what I, you know, I think about internet, uh, the thing about internet culture I was saying last week is that that people have their sins, we allow them their sins, they live through their sins, but then you, you have to just acknowledge we've all sinned. Well, I think that's true. I also think you're letting off the hook the coverage at the time way too much, which is to say, sure, there are jokes that get made and mocking happens, but that was basically all. That was her whole self. And she talks about this quite movingly at the end. She was 24 years old. She didn't have a developed conception of identity that she could use to hold herself together in this onslaught of just vile negativity she was facing. And nobody cared. Nobody thought of her as just like this girl who, you know, you had know, gotten in way over her head. You know what? She had also contributed. She'd slept with the president, right? And she had created a scandal which threatened to destroy the presidency of Bill Clinton. Well, strictly I mean, like, speaking, it she didn't it create it. it. Well, if the president she, had said, yes, I slept with her, that would have, the scandal would have been of totally she, different she, shape and she order. She knew that it had scale, right? She knew she wasn't sleeping with her boss at the insurance company. Right. But, I mean, in terms of contributory behavior to the magnitude of what happened, Linda Tripp, Ken Starr, the president, are I, all— I, I'm not saying so she's, I'm not she saying she's a solo actor. And when she was imprisonment, she refused I, to she betray him. She did. She was a, that was very brave. I think she's a very admirable figure. I just don't – I think the idea – What? You think that, we forgot that she slept with the president? Think, we haven't forgotten that. I think that. the idea that the – She did not the, actually the frenzy sleep with the time, Whatever. The idea that the frenzy at the time was somehow completely without merit and that no, people completely – No, I don't think she said that. Like that, that we, that we <laughs> Wait, were, who are you arguing with? We were with? completely – we complete every – you know, the way that she was treated was completely unfair I think is just not right. Emily, the idea was, that she is made completely of bananas and that she also is – She's not arguing that she's either <laughs> a completely bananas about? or that she's not at some at fault in some way. The fact I that we lost our humanity point. at the time seems like, yeah, of course we lost our humanity. That's what happens to people at the center of scandals. 
no, uh, no. But I don't think it has to happen. And I think actually one of your stronger points is that now it wouldn't happen in the same monochromatic way. And what's deeply troubling, looking back at that coverage again, is just how it was all going in one direction, particularly from women. The other thing is, I mean, we got to talk about Hillary Clinton in this because I think the most important line in the piece is where she says that to her, it's troubling that Hillary would have blamed the woman. Not just and Monica Lewinsky says it's not just blaming Monica; it's also blaming Hillary herself because in this recently released conversation with Diane Blair, Hillary's friend, she basically says, well, it was my fault because I wasn't attentive enough to uh, build Yeah, I, I think that was a little... That was the weakest, it felt to me, part of the argument because as she then concedes, the Diane Blair conversations were were weird conversations. In they which were, Hillary knew she was being she, speaking for posterity. But, but she so, I'm not sure. She like She did, did and she, she didn't. didn't know. And also, we all have friends where like... In those conversations, having read those dryer, there was a lot of like f- macho in front of the friend. There was a lot of acting for her friend. I don't think necessarily for posterity. I just think it's a you can't hang much on those quotes from that. Okay, um, that's but, fair enough. But Monica Lewinsky is roadkill in the Clinton. Oh yeah. Ascent. I mean, right? She is a big problem because if you really stop and think about how they treated her, you don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. You feel icky about both of them, so, and. That is a problem. Well, maybe this don't feel that way. Maybe this is an unfair uh, you question. You don't feel icky about how they treated her? You think that it was completely reasonable to just totally and utterly throw her under the bus? Look, we have no idea what happened in the internal dynamic of their marriage. We have no idea, like how Hillary, whether when she says she's blaming Monica, we just have no idea. I'm not talking about Bill Clinton. I'm talking about Hillary Clinton here. So Hillary I, Clinton is now Hil- on the record as saying, as calling Lewinsky a Looney Tunes narcissist. Of, if, should she say something else now? Should she apologize in some way? Should she try to amplify what I she think was there's talking a tremendous about? Lati- she never publicly said yeah, anything about Lewinsky. Right. I don't right. think she. I think you get a huge amount of latitude when your right. marriage is under tremendous stress. But you don't even know what anymore. your husband is. Now it's not. At some point, she's going to have to say something nicer. And she should. Well, that was going to be my question, is that let's say she weren't involved in this at all, but were a public figure and has a role in the conversation. What would her comments be? You mean if this wasn't her marriage? If this wasn't her marriage. If this was some other woman, she would figure out. If if it was politically possible. I mean, the Clintons have to calculate anything. That's their lives. That's who they are. She would say something. I'm sure if she could take herself out of this situation because Hillary Clinton has different dimensions to her. She knows what empathy is. Right. God, I just have to close by saying I missed that Lewinsky scandal so much. That was the last that was the last innocent time in Washington. It was so much fun. Didn't seem to matter. None of it seemed to matter. The economy was fine. It was all such bull. It was just a thrill. Don't tell me you didn't enjoy that whole moment, John. <laughs> I Don't look tell at you me. in horror. Don't tell me you weren't. You didn't take the uh, pleasure of it no, that every I, journalist it was, took at no, that time. No, you don't remember. It was just. It just. You knew he wasn't going to get kicked out of office, and it was just this like daily fake show to figure out how. And then the Senate kind of came in and say, "Okay, the House has done their thing." We're, they figured it out like in a second. That was the only thing that covering that was fun was being over in the Senate and watching them just basically saying like Trent Lott and Ted Kennedy and Phil Graham just saying like the adults are in charge now we're getting this done with and they went into the old Senate chamber they had like a did, short talk and boom it was over I mean they said were you like, there were you in the Senate did we hang oh, out together because I covered that every day yeah yeah no we I, must have I was there I was there every day that was the most it was just like drama cons- and when it got to the Senate and the House it was just those endless hearings but 
in the Senate, it was not fun from any kind of like good for America kind of way, but just the kind of long, constant, all night running from office to office, trying to figure out what was going on part of the Senate. Yeah, stuff doesn't happen like that anymore because there aren't pieces of legislation where things actually, I mean, the Affordable Care Act even didn't like have that feeling. Anyway, John Dickerson, Monica Lewinsky to the Affordable Care Act. That's the kind of class you bring to the joint. The GabFest is also brought to you this week by Citrix GoToMeeting. Good communication is crucial for any business, especially when the people you work with aren't in the same office. You need to be able to stay connected and meet with coworkers and clients wherever they are. And that's why millions of small business professionals rely on Citrix GoToMeeting, and you should too. It's a proven solution for meeting and collaborating online. With GoToMeeting, you can share the same screen to review documents and presentations in real time. It makes it easier for everyone to stay on the same page. And with built-in HD video conferencing, you just need a webcam to see each other face-to-face. So it's like being in the same room. GoToMeeting allows you to present, demonstrate, and just simply meet from anywhere with any Mac, PC, tablet, or smartphone. You can see why millions choose GoToMeeting and start hosting your own face-to-face online meetings today and try it free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code GABFEST. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code GABFEST. Let's go to cocktail chatter. After that Lewinsky, I feel like we should just do more Lewinsky, Lewinsky chatter. Emily, what do you have to chatter about? I got to be Yenta in a small way this week for two of my favorite people, Emily Yaffe, who is, of course, Dear Prudy at Slate, and Dan Savage, who does the Savage Love podcast and is the um, amazing sex columnist in Seattle. So Dan is about to start a new feature called Second Opinions. And who is his first guest? Emily Yaffe. He turns out to be a a huge Dear Pretty fan. And I just cannot wait to listen to this segment of Savage Love. It's going to be the best ever, right? That's so great. John Dickerson, do you have a chatter? The other day I was uh, musing on the Slate discussion alias about the stupid questions that your bank asks you, you know, what's the best dessert wine to pair with fruit? And... Will Salatan, our colleague, said that if you're trying to come up with obscure questions, I can never remember the ones like it was your least favorite teacher and that kind of thing. So he said what people should be asked to do is ask a password question that gets at something that's so secret only they know. So they get to ask the question and then get to come up with uh, with the answer that only they will know. So I asked this of uh, my wonderful um, followers on Facebook, and it turned out that this question is a very interesting sideways kind of route into people's psyche. And it creates this existential moments. And so some of the responses I got, they were just great. So for example, what was my father reading in the ER waiting to get an angiogram on the morning he died? So they go to like these incredibly intense moments. The other one, and they also then go to the ridiculous ones. Who did you dedicate hearts these dreams to when you called 95.5 WPLJFM in the sixth grade? Oh, I love that. Um, What time did my father pick me up at night after the evening shift from my nightly high school job? What song was playing when you lost your virginity? When you were These nine, dreams by heart, apparently. When, you're, <laughs> when you were nine years old, you were caught playing with matches under your bed with your friend Ian from across the street. Ian's dad gave him the belt, but your dad let you choose your punishment. What did he choose? When did you get or give your first hickey? What was the name of the calf you nursed back to health as a child? So I wondered, and so I wrote um, this correspondent back, and the, the um, calf's name was Asshole. Because I had asked for something that was truly idiosyncratic, and that was, and he later explained to me, young calves have a tendency to headbutt as a form of play. The calf's head was just about crotch level from my dad, which ended up with a number of very unpleasant, surprise, playful attacks to the groin when he attempted to feed the calf. Dad would declare, and after that, the name stuck. So anyway, as you're having your cocktails, 
ask people what their one secret question would be, and that will lead and then to remember it, and then right, go and then hack them later. David's constantly obsessed <laughs> with the utilitarian purpose of this. This is <laughs> this has gone well beyond security of your bank information, but to that little tiny window with that's got you know paint over the edges that you can finally open. So my chatter first. We need a new intern. Fabulous intern Rebecca Cohen got a great job in journalism, which we is what wish her well. which is what Gabfest interns do. And she is heading off in a few weeks to a great job at Mother Jones. And we need a new intern. It's a paid position. It's in D.C. It's about 10 hours a week. We need you Email to be free us. on Thursday afternoons. Yeah, you have to be generally. free on Thursday afternoons and probably much of Wednesday to help out. You email us at gabfest at slate.com. Send us a resume, a letter, and an idea, a, sort of a pitch letter, an idea for a Gabfest topic. So gabfest at slate.com and come be our intern. So my chatter quickly, a, a friend of mine recommended a wonderful short film to me. We were talking about things about work, like to show people doing their work. And he said, oh, if you want to see the best little movie about people doing their work, you have to see How Ink is Made. It's a YouTube short. It's only nine minutes long. And it's about the printing ink company, a Canadian company, which makes very high-end, beautiful inks. And it's a nine-minute movie about making ink. It is gorgeous. The color saturation is incredible. And it's just fascinating. All you want to do is go make ink and then buy ink. If I ever have any ink needs, Printing Ink Company of Canada. So go watch that. It's amazing. Oh, you've, you've seen it? Oh, my God. I was stole and it stole that whole portion of my day from me. Oh, did was, I, t- I told you about it. You put it on the, you mentioned it on the, I guess, when we were planning the show. Yeah. But go see Ink. It's amazing. In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. And there was one little show page, slate.com slash gabfest, and two little links to what we talked about today. And a Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest. And one little Twitter account, at SlateGabFest. And a single email address, gabfest at slate.com. And an iTunes subscription and a hundred little five-star ratings. And one little intern, Rebecca Cohen. And one executive producer, Andy Bowers. And a comb and a brush. And a bowl full of mush. And quiet Mike Volo, who is whispering hush. Good night, room. Good night, moon. Good night, cow jumping over the moon. Good night, light and the red balloon. Good night, Facebook. Good night, flowers. Good night, Twitter. Good night, Bowers. Good night, iTunes. Good night, drinks. Good night, intern. Good night, links. Good night, bowl. And good night, mush. And good night to Mike Volo, whispering hush. Good night, stars. Good night, air. Good night, listeners everywhere. Hey, you're still listening. That's good, because I want to give you one more treat to listen to. As many of you know, Mike Pesca has started a wonderful new daily podcast for Slate called The Gist. And I hope you've already subscribed to it. But in case you haven't, here is a little here's a little treat, a little bit of Pesca's brilliance on The Gist. Listen to it. If you like it, go to iTunes and subscribe to The Gist. Congress is a lot like the Bonnaroo Festival. People are desperate to get in. But once you're there, you begin to feel dirty. There's all this mud being slung. And you just want to wash yourself of the whole experience. And before long, you are desperate to get out. Mark Leibovich, author of This Town, is the New York Times Magazine's chief national correspondent. He's writing about this phenomenon. And how you doing, Mark? Uh, good, Mike. Good to be here. Good to be remotely here. Yeah. You wrote about Mike Rogers, who's this powerful guy, Michigan Republican. He chairs the House Intel Committee. You'd think that would be a plum job that you'd want to keep, but no. But no, exactly. Mike Rogers is giving up all of the grandstanding and the ego stroking and the, the, the sort of self-feeling of Congress behind to go into a noble profession. He's not going to be a talk radio host. 
he, he is actually going to be nationally syndicated radio host for Cumulus Radio. Um, he's probably making about 10 times as much as he would have in Congress, and arguably he's actually going to have a bigger impact and will have his voice heard by a lot more many people. Uh, he's also not ruling out running for even higher office when, when one day, which is, you know, he would say president of the United States. So, uh, yeah, all options are open. Oh, when you said he's running for higher office, I was thinking Sean Hannity's seat? Yeah, it, well, exactly. You know, he'd be running for Rush Limbaugh's seat. Now, in, 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 um, in talk radio land, I mean, some would argue that um, that's actually a more powerful position, um, at least on the right, than, um, than being president of the United States as a Republican. So, no, I don't know. But he is, he's keeping all options open, as they all do. Yeah, so I understand you want to be a public servant. I also understand the lure of weather and traffic on the uh, twos. <laughs> on the hour. Yeah, yeah. but, um, you know, it, and it also strikes me that of all the political templates to um, emulate, that Alan Keyes would be a prominent one is <laughs> kind of shocking. That is yeah. actually not making sense. But it is. I get the money part. It's just that Congress is so dysfunctional. Right. Right. Um, you know, I think so. I mean, I think, look, he's, this is not a backbencher. I mean, Mike Rogers is, like you said, he's chair of the Intelligence Committee. He was on more Sunday shows last year than any other political figure in the country. It was like 25, 26. So he certainly doesn't have a problem getting his voice heard. Um, I, I, I think, you know, his value proposition, he would say, is that he's going to be a voice for reasonableness. He's going to be a voice for sort of rationally looking at politics. And, um, you know, I think he would hope to... At least he would say he would hope to distance himself from the Alan Keyes model. Although, I and mean, as soon as the ratings numbers come in and he's lagging behind all of all of the competition, I mean, he might have to adjust his strategy or his bosses might. Right, it. or, you know, take off sweaters or change the color of the sweaters. That was the Alan Keyes question. <laughs> yeah, of course, they can't see the sweaters on radio, Mike. That's the thing. As Bill Maher said, I mean, why not go into talk radio? You, you make tons more money and no one can see your toupee. Um you know, in the interest of responsible journalism, my column, I did point out that Mike Rogers does not wear a toupee, according to sources close to Mike Rogers. But uh, who knows? I could be wrong. Okay, so let's talk about the people, though. Even though it seems so terrible and Rogers wants to get out, or maybe it's not terrible, I mean, $10 million or however much he's getting is great. You know, people are desperate to get in. And yesterday we had some primaries. I don't know if there were surprising results, but in North Carolina, where Kay Hagan, who's a sitting Democratic senator, is expecting a big challenge. The question was, will it be from an establishment candidate? Will it be from a Tea Party candidate? Tea Party lost. Um, how do you read into that? And then I'm going to give you my take on the Tea Party, but you go first. Uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, maybe, I mean, people are reading this as a blow against the Tea Party. Maybe the establishment is circling the wagons and has had enough of these, you know, unelectable Tea Party nominees. Um, I, I think it's a small sample size, but I think, you know, certainly it's consistent with the Republican Party, what they're trying to do, which is get behind the more electable candidates. And who knows? I mean, maybe the, this is also a larger, uh, you know, a larger harbinger for what's going on with the Tea Party. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, exactly what you said is my thought, the idea of the small sample size. So at first, I mean, there definitely is something going on, and it's not like the Tea Party is unpopular. But, you know, you could point to there are only a few elections a year, and there's a lot of stats about polling or whatever, but there are only, you know, five or six actual contested data points for us to base anything on. So on the one hand, you could say, oh, the Tea Party, they shot themselves in the foot with the Delaware witch lady Christine O'Donnell. But, you know, people don't talk about, you know, what about Ron Johnson of Wisconsin? This totally, he's very Tea Party. He seems like a totally legitimate candidate. I don't know. I don't know how much we could read into it at all. And I don't know how much we could read into 
what, and this is how I think it all relates back, is the Tea Party actually still, even if they're losing primaries, still imbuing the Republican Party with ideas? Um, I, I would say that they are. I mean, look, I think with the real the real laboratory for this tends to be bigger elections, whether it's a Senate election or certainly a presidential election. I think, you know, we'll get a real indicator of this you know, in the run-up to the 2016 primaries when we see how the discourse is influenced if a, someone like a Ted Cruz or a Rand Paul runs and, and we sort of see how, how it you know, might inform the views of the eventual, nomin- eventual nominees, whether it can be one of those guys or whether it's a more establishment figure like a Jeff Bush or a Chris Christie. Yeah. And now I want to give you a, a quote that Mike Huckabee says, who's politician turned media star. In politics, there are three basic categories. There's campaigning, there's governing, and there's talking about it. I just think he totally misses the idea of ideas. And you were, you were portraying Mike Rogers as thinking, or at least saying that this post, a radio show, will be a better way to get ideas into the Republican Party. You know, are the ideas really coming from, they come from everywhere, but are they coming from talk radio more than they are from actual elected officials? Is that a legitimate thing to say? Well, first of all, the the part of the Huckabee quote that you didn't say is at the end when he said, you know, talking about it pays the most. So I think that's what drives a lot of decisions. But no, I mean, I think your point is correct, and I also think your point is poignant because the Republican Party is quite bereft of ideas these days. I mean, I think that has been really the issue there, and it's not coming from talk radio, and it's not coming from elected officials, and it's not coming from candidates so much. I mean, Paul Ryan is seen as, you know, the, the idea guy on the right, and, and he certainly wasn't able to get any oxygen, even as the Republican vice presidential nominee the other, you know, in, a couple of years ago. So. Yeah, I mean, ideas are a huge part of this, but you have to get into to power in order to enact them, and you have to get into a serious political environment uh, in if, if you're going to get them heard and debated. So that hasn't happened in the last few years with the Republican Party. Well, I want to thank you, Mark Leibovich, and I want to uh, congratulate Tom Tillis, who won that Republican primary. Maybe one day he'll be a senator, and that will grease the way for him to host his own Google <laughs> Hangout. <laughs> and maybe, and yeah, and if he really succeeds, he might a podcast. <laughs> but we hold that to a much higher standard. <laughs> Mark Leibovich, author of This Town, writes for the uh, Sunday Magazine. He's the chief national correspondent for the Times Sunday Magazine. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.